This message was presented at the Amen Missions 2017 Bible Conference, Shaken But Not Forsaken, in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. For more resources like this, visit us at www.amen-missions.co.za. Amen. Advent message to every nation. Let's get, let's get into God's Word now. And this is the scripture reading for the message this morning. But there were also false prophets, there were false prophets also among the people. Even as there shall be false teachers among you who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious way, ways by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into the chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly. Our message this Sabbath is entitled, when God spared not. We're going to go to Abraham, which we talked about in the, in the Sabbath school lesson this morning. I, I didn't say that then because I figured I could use it in my sermon, some of our comments this morning. But in Genesis 18 and verse 16, the scripture says, And the men rose up from hence and looked towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to bring them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. So God reiterates the covenant that we discussed in Sabbath school this morning. And, and God has such a relationship with Abraham that he says, you know what, if I'm going to do something, I don't want to hide it from Abraham. He says, for I know him. And what does he know about Abraham? That Abraham may not have even known about himself, honestly, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. And the Lord said, because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done all together according to the cry of it, which is come unto me, and if not, I will know. And the men turned their faces from thence and went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood yet before the Lord." So Abraham draws near God, and this is the pre-incarnate Christ we're talking about here, and says, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Peradventure there be 50 righteous within the city. Wilt thou also destroy and not spare the place for the 50 righteous that are therein? Now, this, this is an important passage of Scripture. It says that you can negotiate for an entire community with just a few righteous souls. I want to submit to you that the destruction of hurricanes and tornadoes, of earthquakes in the world might be much greater at times, except that there are a few righteous. He says if there are just 50 righteous, who are the righteous? So in, in Genesis 15 and verse 5, it says, And he brought him forth abroad, and we talked about this this morning, and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars if you be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. Abraham believed when God said, you're going to be a great nation. Now, we understand even from our Sabbath school study this morning, Abraham and Sarah together didn't really get the whole thing fully, or at least they didn't act on it fully. But verse 6 says, Abraham believed in the Lord, 
And look at what God does. He counted it to him for righteousness. We're going to, to celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation this year. And I can tell you that the reason I'm a Seventh-day Adventist Christian, the reason I'm a Christian is because of that first doctrine. That first doctrine was that righteousness is by faith. Now, we take that for granted today. We, you know, there's so many fancy doctrines we have and so many deep things we can study that sometimes we, we scale over that one. But let me submit to you that when, in my time of, of travail, the time when I was young and I was looking for something else to believe, I studied the religions of the world. I read the Quran. I studied um, Hindu books, Buddhist books, Rastafarianism. Um, I studied all kinds of stuff. And I can tell you that the one thing that always brought me back to Christianity was that the only religion, Bible-based Christianity, is the only religion that says you cannot work your way into salvation. Did you get that? Every, if you want nirvana, you got to go through these iterations and you'll be reincarnated and you have to do better in the next life. And I could go on and on with, with, with all the different religions of the world and how you have to work your way into being saved. Christianity says your righteousness does not depend on your behavior. Your righteousness depends on your acceptance of Christ's behavior. Righteousness is by faith. When you understand that, it liberates you to actually serve God and to actually live a more righteous outward life. Because once you understand that you are powerless to actually work and earn salvation, you give up trying and your focus comes on connecting with the one who actually can save you. And then you begin to behave differently because the relationship changes your behavior. Abraham was righteous, not because he did right. In fact, if you just keep reading in Genesis, as we talked about in Sabbath school, in just the next chapter, he and his wife co-conspire uh, for Abraham to marry Hagar. People skip that a lot. To marry Hagar and then to have a child Ishmael with her. Now, this is the guy who one chapter earlier said he believes. And it wouldn't be 13 or 15 years till Isaac um, is actually taken up the mountain and Abraham looks to, 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 to follow God's command and be obedient. Abraham does not manifest the behavior of his faith for a long time. That ought to give somebody hope because somebody in here is not manifesting the behavior of their faith just yet. And you start thinking, you know what, I can't serve God. I keep messing up. But you know what the Bible says? I just told, I was just sharing this with someone at work this week. The Bible says that a just man falls seven times, but he does what? He rises every time. Your righteousness, your justification is in your rising, not in your falling. Oh, y'all missing this thing. This thing is good. That means it doesn't matter that you fall. What matters is do you trust God enough to get back up and keep following him? In fact, the New Testament focuses on this. For what said the scripture, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. We read that this morning. Even as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And this uses the, some accounting terminology, which means that literally it was slipped from one column. Come on, church. And that, that what was belonged in, a, in this column was given to Abraham as if Abraham had earned it. Like an accounting spreadsheet, magically this prophet moved from this column to this column, even though this column has no business with that money being in it. It was accounted to him as righteousness. And the scripture was fulfilled which said, Abraham believed God. And it was imputed, meaning it was, it was, it was as if it was transmitted to him. 
as if it was right as righteousness. And look at the last verse there. Last part of that verse. And Abraham is called what? The friend of God. Your belief develops your relationship. Your faith does. Now, don't get me wrong. The seven days is still the Sabbath. The, the, the sanctuary message, the sanctuary message. But you know how much sweeter all those doctrines are when you understand this one? Verse 25, that be far from thee to do after this man. Abraham is pleading with God because Lot, his nephew, is in Sodom. To slay the righteous with the wicked and that the righteous should be as the wicked. That be far from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Abraham was a friend of God. You see how he challenges God? And the Lord said, if I find just 50 righteous in Sodom, I'll spare the place for their sakes. Abraham stops and thinks about this thing and says, wait a minute. Yeah. You know, I've been to Sodom before. Uh, I'm not so sure there's 50 righteous folk in that city. So he says, ah, let me do some math. He says, ah, how about if they're just 45? Poor adventure, there shall lack five, verse 28, of, of the 50 righteous. Will you destroy all the city for the lack of five? And he said, if I find there 45, I won't destroy it. And he spoke to him yet again and said, per adventure, there shall be 40. He says, no, nah, I won't do it for 40. He said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, verse 30. And I will speak. Peradventure, there just be 30. He said, I won't do it for 30. And he said, uh, Abraham's thinking the whole time, you know, I've been to Sodom. I don't think there's 30 folk righteous in all of Sodom. He said, I've taken upon me to speak to the peradventure, there should be 20. He said, I won't destroy it for 20 sake. And he said, oh, Lord, let not, let not the Lord be angry, and I'll speak yet this once. If there are just 10 folk righteous, just 10, because he's trying to count Lot, his wife, his daughters, their husband. The, he's trying to get to the nut. He's, he's just figuring, at least, huh, at least my family ought to be right. He assumed about his family what was not true. Oh, there's a whole sermon in that. And then he says in verse 33, and the Lord went his way. As soon as he had left communion with Abraham, and Abraham returned unto his place. And that's where it's left, if there are just ten. Now, I want to give you five times in the Bible when God spared not. There are five times in the Bible when God spared not. If you understand these five things, these five things will give you a great understanding of how God works and what God is looking for. The first time is the story we just read. The cities of Lot, 2 Peter 2, 6, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly. So the first time God does not spare, the first example I give you is cities. Now, most people think they understand what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah and why, but most people really don't. The answer is actually found in the book of Ezekiel, 16 and verse 49. It says, behold, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. Here are the sins that Sodom exhibited that caused God to turn on Sodom. What was the number one sin? Pride. Did you get that? Pride. It was self-exaltation. Pride. Pride in my color. Oh, somebody. Pride in my tribe. Pride in my language. Pride in who I am inherently. It was pride. Pride that I was better than other folk. Pride is number one. Fullness of bread. They had everything they wanted. Abundance of idleness with that idleness. And Ellen White speaks a lot on the dangers of idle minds was in her and in her daughters. And look at the last part. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. Those were the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, when then Ezekiel says, and they were haughty, they were high-minded, they were arrogant and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw good. Pride. 
fullness of bread, idleness, and would not help anyone else. Ellen White says it like this. She says, all pride in human agencies is a direct affront to God. All exaltation of self is displeasing to God. Men claim to themselves the honor of wisdom, which honor belongs wholly to God and came from God. Well, I like this, ver- this sentence. Man originates nothing. Put that on your cubicle along with my stress equals demands minus resources. Man originates nothing. Stop patting yourself on the back. God will abase all who rob him of his glory. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Better is it to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. So the first time God spared not, he spared not the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah because of their pride and their pride led them to sin. The second time God spares not, he does not spare, the second example, he does not spare the nation of Israel. Romans 11, well, because of unbelief, they were broken off. And thou standest by faith, be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed, lest he also spare not thee. So this goes back to what we were talking about in the Sabbath school lesson as well. Paul says, listen, if God didn't spare the natural branches, if all of Israel and Judah were broken off, you got to be careful because you can be broken off. So then you got to ask the question, why were they broken off? And, and it says in Hosea 8.1, set the trumpet to thy mouth. He shall come as an eagle against the house of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant. Talked about covenant this morning uh, and trespassed against my law, covenant and the law. Israel shall cry unto me, my God, we know thee. Israel has cast off the thing that is good. The enemy shall pursue him. I have written to him the great things of my law, but they were counted as a what? A strange thing. For Israel has done what? Forgotten his maker and builds temples. And Judah has multiplied fenced cities, but I will send a fire upon his cities and it shall devour the palaces thereof. They forgot God. They forgot the law. They forgot the covenant. And they were broken off. What does the spirit of prophecy say about this one? Ellen White says, the apostasy of Israel developed how? Gradually. From generation to generation. Satan had made repeated attempts to cause the chosen nation to forget the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments that, had, that they had promised to keep forever. Deuteronomy 6.1. He knew that if he could only lead Israel to forget God and to walk after other gods and serve them and worship them, they would surely perish. What I like about that passage there is that it happened slowly from generation to generation. You know, if you take a frog and you drop a frog into a pot of boiling water, the frog is going to jump. But if you set a a frog in a pot of cool water and turn the fire on under the frog and slowly heat the water, the frog will stay in the water and boil to death. Spiritually, it's the same thing. The enemy understands that if he shocked you with new crazy things, you'd all jump out the water. So slowly things creep into the church. From generation to generation. One generation says, you know, we don't need to sing hymns anymore. We don't have to sing the hymns. The hymns aren't that important. They're not relevant to now. They're old songs. We'll sing the modern praise songs. Now, there's nothing wrong with new songs. In fact, the scripture says, sing unto the Lord a new song. But you got to ask yourself, the old songs do something the new songs often do not do. They teach doctrine. Oh, you're missing this thing. So from generation to generation, there was a time you went to church and everything lifted up truth. 
Now you can go to church and what is lifted up is emotion. And if you're not careful, you walk away emotionally stimulated but intellectually neglected. And from generation to generation, you finally get to a generation that says, you know what? If it feels good, it can't really be wrong. Number one, Sodom and Gomorrah, cities, because of pride. The second was Israel, a nation, not spared because she broke the covenant and she forgot God. But the third time God spared not was the old, the antediluvian world. Second Peter 2, 5 says, and spared not the old world. But save Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Genesis 6, 11 says, the earth also was corrupt before God. We're talking about the antediluvian world. And the earth was filled with violence. God does not like violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, the end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And Ellen White says, the inhabitants of the Noetian world were destroyed, and here's why they were destroyed, because they were corrupted through the indulgence of perverted appetite. Though they worshipped self-indulgence, eating, drinking, merrymaking, and resorted to acts of violence and crime if their desires and passions were interfered with. Let me tell you something. In America right now, we have a, a, a health revolution going on. There's a documentary on Netflix, and they have Netflix in South Africa because I saw the big posters of the Netflix stuff in the Johannesburg airport. And there's a documentary called What the Health? Now, some of the famous celebrities like Neo and even Beyonce, uh, these guys are going vegan. And so you're seeing that there's, there's a whole thing happening in the States where all these people are going plant-based. If you go to Los Angeles and you, have, there's a, you can download an app called Happy Cow, yeah, that's the name of it. And, and, and you can find all the plant-based vegan restaurants in your area. And it's so popular now that everyone is doing it. And let me tell you what's crazy. Except the church. It's as if we, who knew this all along, now Beyonce's doing it in his hip, people want to do it. You know, I thought Ellen White was good enough. I, I didn't know you needed a Beyonce before you start thinking about giving up me. I didn't know it was offensive to suggest that the appetite can be perverted, which is what they're telling now. All the secrets of the meat and dairy industry in the United States, when you watch the documentary, it will blow your mind. And focus in, oh, I can't eat. Wait a minute. You've been having this your whole life. You used to throw stones at the folk that came to church and said the same, same thing Hollywood is now saying. A perverted appetite. And when they couldn't get what they wanted, they killed for it. God said, uh-uh. If this is the condition of the world after just 2,000 years, and it's not the fullness of time for Christ to come, I got to slow this thing down and start the world over with just Noah and his descendants. And he started the whole world over. Number one, Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities were not spared because of their pride that led to sin. Number two, Israel, a nation was not spared because she broke the covenant and she forgot God. Number three, the world before the flood was not spared because of appetite and violence. But the fourth example is the example of the fallen angels themselves. A universe fell. Are y'all missing this thing? A city, a nation, a world, the universe. 
2 Peter 2, 4, for if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, the angels were cast down. Why? Revelation, 7, uh, Revelation 12, 7 says, and there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels and prevailed not. Neither was their place found anymore in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world. He was cast out into the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Ellen White, given the example of Eden, describes what happens to the angels. She says, like the angels, the dwellers in Eden had been placed upon probation. Their happy estate could be retained only on condition of fidelity to the creator's law. They could obey and live or disobey and perish. God had made them the recipients of rich blessings, but should they disregard his will, he who spared not the angels that sinned could not spare them. Transgression would forfeit his gifts, and bring upon them misery and ruin. The first four times, cities, a nation, a world, and a universe. And why the universe? Because God's character had to be defended. So as I studied this thing, I started to say, Lord, how in the world are we going to make it? If all these folk, the angels with all the privilege they had, they didn't know sin, and they fell and were cut off. How in the world are we going to make it? None of us are going to survive, Lord. I began to agonize with God as I studied this thing. Lord, how are we going to make it if all of this is true? God said, hold on, brother. There's a fifth time. Romans 8.31. What shall we then say to these things if God be for us? Who can be against us? And here's the fifth time God spared not, church. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? God said, yeah, I didn't spare the city. I didn't spare the nation. Didn't spare the world or the universe. But guess what? To redeem you, I also did not spare my son. I'm a Christian because God spared not his own son. He allowed his son to suffer the, the punishment that I deserve. He allowed Jesus to go to a cross from which I should have hung. He allowed Jesus to be beaten, brutalized, his name maligned. I tell you, when I was going through my thing and I would read the story of Christ, it would always put everything back into perspective. Are y'all missing this thing? If you read Matthew 26 and 27, when you're going through a trial, it makes it because guess what? I, this, I, you could easily say there's stuff I did to deserve what I got. But what did Jesus do to deserve what he got? Ellen White says it like this. We're talking about the cross. Without the cross, man could have no connection with the Father. On it hangs our every hope. In view of it, the Christian may advance with steps of a conqueror, for from it streams the light of the Savior's love. When the sinner reaches the cross and looks up to the one who died to save him, he may rejoice with fullness of joy, for his sins are pardoned. Kneeling at the cross, I like this sentence, kneeling at the cross, he has reached the highest place to which man can attain. Watch this. The highest place on earth is not to be the president of the United States 
or the president of South Africa. It is not to be the head of the United Nations. It is not to be the Surgeon General of the United States. The highest place you can reach on earth is to be kneeling at the foot of the cross. And watch this. You don't need a degree to get there. You don't need a career path to get there. You don't have to own houses and land or a gold mine somewhere. All it takes is that you be willing to kneel at the cross. That's the highest position you can attain. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God is revealed in the face of Jesus Christ and the words of pardon are spoken. Live, O ye guilty sinners. Live. Your repentance is accepted for I have found a ransom. Through the cross, we learn that our heavenly father loves us with an infinite and everlasting love and draws us to him with more than a mother's yearning sympathy for a wayward child. Can we wonder that Paul exclaimed, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was a learned man. He was an accomplished man. Paul said, listen, only thing I'll glory in is in the cross of Jesus Christ. Our only hope is perfect trust in the blood of him who can save to the uttermost all that come unto God by him. The death of Christ on the cross of Calvary is our only hope in this world, and it will be our theme. We will study this theme in the world to come. Oh, we do not comprehend the, comprehend the value of the atonement. If we did, we would talk more about it. The gift of God and his beloved son was the expression of an incomprehensible love. It was the utmost that God could do to, to preserve the honor of his law and still save the transgressor. Why should man not study the theme of redemption? It is the greatest subject that can engage the human mind. If men would contemplate the love of Christ displayed in the cross, their faith would be strengthened to appropriate the merits of his shed blood and they would be cleansed and saved from sin. Peter says it like this. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The fifth time that God spared not, Christ was not spared so that you and I could be spared. Let me tell you something. That's why I'm a Christian. God did not spare his own son, and if I just... Have faith and trust in that ransoming process. As defective as I am, as unworthy as I am, as sinful as I am, I can claim the blood of Jesus Christ. And I can live a victorious life by the same blood that washes my sin away. The story is told of a young man who went to play poker one night. It's a true story. In one of the western United States. He brought his gun with him. I don't know if you noticed, but in the States, guns are quite legal in many parts of the States. You can have a concealed carry option. And he went to go play poker, and he got a little drunk playing poker. And he got into an argument with the gentleman sitting across the table from him. And they began to go at it. And he, a little drunk and obviously a bit short-tempered, reached into his bag and pulled out the gun, pointed it across the table, and shot and killed the young man across the table. The police came, and he was arrested, and he went in front of a judge. And he sat there and waited to go to full trial. While the legal process is working, his family is hoping for him, praying for him, 
hoping that he won't get the full brunt of the death penalty, which is in effect in that state. Well, he goes to trial and he loses the trial and the jury not only convicts him of murder in the first degree, they sentence him to death in the electric chair. When his family gets this, they begin to fill out petitions. By now, years, he's been sitting in the legal system for years. They start to fill out petitions. Everyone in the house signs the petition to send to the governor of the state asking for a stay of execution, meaning that he would spend the rest of his life in prison, but he wouldn't die in the electric chair. So they fill out the first person signs and the next person in the whole house and the next house till the whole street and the next street till a block and the next block till the town and then the next town until the county and the next county until one day as the governor is sitting there doing his work, baskets and baskets of petition come into his office on behalf of this young man asking for a stay of execution. The governor is a Christian. And when he sees the mercy of the people of his state and the time that has already transpired in the process, he doesn't write for him to get a stay of execution. The governor of the state writes out a full pardon for the young man. And the governor takes the letter and puts it into his pocket. But before he leaves the governor's mansion to go to the state penitentiary, he decides he wants to give the young man the good news dressed up like a Christian preacher. So he slips on a preacher's robe, jumps into the limousine, and he's whisked off to the state penitentiary. The warden of the prison is waiting for the governor as he gets there, and the warden uh, shakes his hand and says, uh, I'll take you up to death row, and he runs him up the stairs, and, and as the warden is about to show him the cell, he, the governor stops him and says, wait a minute, let me go by myself. He says, it's that cell. He points out the cell. The governor walks down there dressed like a Christian and goes into the young man's cell. And as he walks into the young man's cell, the young man jumps up and says, get out. The governor says, wait a minute, I've got news. I've got, I've got good news. The young man says, I was raised a Christian and look where it's landed me. Get out. The governor says, please, young man, give me a moment of your time. Let me explain. He says, I've had three preachers come already this week. Get out. The governor pleads one more time. He says, you don't understand. I've got news. I've got good news. The young man says, if you don't get out, I'm calling the warden and the guards, and I'm going to have you put out. The governor, dejected, pushes that letter deep down into his pocket, turns with his head dropped and walks back out. The warden grabs him, and he tells him what happened. The warden walks him back to the limousine. The governor jumps into the limousine and he's whisked back off to the governor's mansion. But the warden, with a big smile on his face, goes running back up the stairs to death row and runs into the young man's uh, cell and drops down on the cot in the room and says, Hey, how did your visit with the governor go? The young man says, Wait a minute, you mean that guy dressed up like a preacher was the governor? And the warden, he can't hold help himself. He says, Not only was that the governor, he had a full pardon written out for you the young man began to weep he says quick give me pen give me paper and he begins to write dear governor i did not know it was you the letter is mailed back to the governor's office and the governor gets it and opens it and with tears streaming down the governor's face he turns the letter over writes on the back no longer interested in this case 
day comes for this young man to die. But they bring him to st and stand him in front of the electric chair. They ask him, is there anything you want to say before you die? All of the newspaper cameras are there. All of the reporters are there. And the young man looks into the cameras and he says, yes, tell the young men of America that I'm not dying because I'm a murderer. Tell them that I'm not dying because of all that I've done wrong. He says, tell the young men of America that I die today because I refused to accept the pardon. Let me tell you something. Our sins, like petitions, reached the office of the great governor of the universe. And when Jesus saw the mess that we were in, he didn't slip on a preacher's robe. He slipped on the flesh of a baby. Was born in a manger. And he came to earth and lived a sinless life so that with his own blood, he could write out a full pardon for each one of us. And I'm here to tell you today that the warden, the devil, loves for you to reject that pardon. But if you'll accept the pardon, it doesn't matter what you did to get in the mess you're in. The pardon, by definition, says that you're pardoned of what you did. That you're forgiven for what you did. You're set free from who you were. So I challenge you on this Holy Sabbath day. Don't reject the pardon. This message was presented at the Amen Missions 2017 Bible Conference. Shaken but not forsaken in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. Amen Missions, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, is a youth-led ministry seeking to inspire young people to be Bible-based, mission-focused, and Christ-centered Christians. Our aim is to assist in taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to all the world in this generation. For more resources like this, or to find out how to support this work, visit us at www.amen-missions.co.za Amen. Advent message to every nation. This recording was produced by the Preparation Ministry.